morning. Guys need to loosen up or something. I don't know. You guys are tired, stayed up too late last night. How many people watched college ball games yesterday? Nobody? <laughs> All right. Um, feel free to speak out and say amen and things of that nature. This is not a one-way conversation. This is us speaking together and, of course, God the Holy Spirit talking to us as his people. A baptism of obedience. You've heard the text, Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. Baptism. Baptism is a witness to the world that you are no longer at the center of your life. It's an act of obedience that must be preceded by repentance. John was talking about and preaching about a baptism of repentance. We talked about that. Now, repentance is not just being sorry about your sins and turning away from them. It's an intentional turning to God, committing yourself to following him no matter what. Let me put this in context. That means for me... When I was going to seminary, all my professors and all the faculty at Southwestern could go the other way. They said, we don't believe in it no more. Everybody at Forestburg Baptist Church would say, I don't believe it anymore. I must be committed, I'm, no matter what people do around me, that I'm going to be committed to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to follow him. Now, baptism requires humility. We talked about that as well. We have to admit that we cannot heal or save yourselves. We can't do it. And when you come as baptism, you come to Christ, you're repenting of your sins and you're humbling yourself, admitting to yourself and to God that you cannot heal or save yourself. Now, why is baptism an act of obedience? Because Jesus commands it. Perhaps you've heard of this text, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. We call it the Great Commission. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to go make disciples. Discipleship. So coming to Christ, asking him to come into your life, repent of his sins, you confess of your sins, and follow obedience and baptism, that's not the end. That's just the first step. We all are supposed to be involved in discipleship. We are to be discipling somebody else, and we have someone discipling us as well. To put it to you this way, God allowed me to have a wonderful education at Southwestern, but my New Testament prof, Dr. James Wicker, told me this, you are now responsible to find somebody who you can pour everything that you learn into them. Because I have poured everything I've learned into you. Now you turn around and, and you turn around and you repeat that process. So even now, as your pastor, I ought to identify somebody who I can pour all what I've learned into them. So if something happens to me, by the way, I don't plan anything happening to me, but if something happens to me, someone can step in and the ministry can keep going. See, churches should not rise and fall in ministry simply because the pastor is sick or the pastor leaves, whatever happens. The ministry of the church needs to continue on. We're all in the process of discipling other people and people discipling us. Now, Jesus was baptized. It was a public proclamation of the beginning of his earthly ministry. Now, we need to be obedient to follow the Lord, 
in baptism as an outward demonstration of the inward transformation. I say that real fast. To demonstrate the outward, excuse me, demonstrate the outward demonstration of our inward transformation. And in our text today is Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. You can find this in all four of the Gospels. We're in Matthew this morning. The baptism of Jesus validates the ministry of John. Look back in verse 13. Jesus arrived where he came from Galilee at the Jordan. The Jordan River, that is, coming to John. Why did Jesus do this? Well, basically, it doesn't say in the text, but when he did this, he's basically telling John, everybody around him, John, you have been faithful to the task what was given to you. You've been preparing the way for the Messiah, and you were faithful to do that. You've been out here preaching and teaching and baptizing people and telling them they must re- confess and repent of their sins. You've been faithful to that task. You've been faithful to the message in which I've given you to proclaim. So he's validating the ministry of John. He's letting anybody know that this is exactly what, he'd been, what he's been called to do. Now in verse 14, John tries to stop him from being baptized. Look at this, John tried to prevent or stop or deter him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me, and yet you come to me? That's because baptism implies that that person being baptized has been repentant. When you come up and you ask to be baptized, the first question I'm going to ask you is why? Now, I don't know your heart. Only God knows your heart. But we need to have confessed and repented. So when you're up here and you're being baptized, you're proclaiming to everybody, I've confessed my sins, I've repented of my sins, and now I'm dedicating my life to following the Lord. It's a public proclamation of what you've decided to do. And that's the reason why John hesitates at the thought of baptizing Jesus. What does Jesus need to repent of? And of course he acknowledges his own sinfulness when he says, I have need to be baptized by you. But look at verse 15 that Jesus responds. Permitted at this time, for in this way, or because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now let me make one thing clear. Jesus is not confessing any sin has nothing to confess of. He has nothing to repent of. But he's coming, why? Look what the text says, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, so far, he's already fulfilled specific prophecies of the Messiah. He's also fulfilled some more general scriptural themes, and now he wishes to obey all the moral demands of God's will. To fulfill all righteousness means to complete everything that forms part of a relationship of obedience to God. And in so doing, Jesus identifies with and endorses John's ministry as divinely ordained. And therefore, John's message is to be heeded. It needs to be followed. So he comes to fulfill all righteousness. He's identifying himself with us. He is showing us what we, mu- what we must do to live in obedience to God. He's fulfilling that. So notice this is baptism fulfilled John's, validate John's ministry, but also validates his own ministry. Many people were baptized by John, but John knew exactly who Jesus was. Now we read in John chapter 1, verse 29, when, Jesus, when John sees Jesus walking towards him, he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew exactly who Jesus was. 
and what he was coming to do. Now, for the people who followed John seriously, you thought that'd be enough, but the Father does something, giving his stamp of approval, if you will, upon Jesus and his ministry in which he's about to gauge into. Look at back in verses 16 and 17. Jesus came immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. Some translations remember that suddenly opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, selling on him, or literally, it says, coming upon him. And a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son, or this is my dearly loved son, or this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased, who I delight in, who brings me great joy. Jesus, the son, has the endorsement has the authorization, has the commissioning of God the Father to carry out his mission, what he came to do. Now, at this point, no one really understood exactly what his mission was going to be. A lot of misunderstanding. But on this side of the cross, I am so glad I see this, that God the Father says, yes, now is the time to fulfill your mission. You're the one. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. And later, after the cross... What happens after Jesus dies? It's not a trick question. What happens three days later? He's resurrected, right? That's another validation that Jesus' sacrifice pleased the Father. He raised him from the dead. So now that sacrifice is a substitutionary sacrifice for you and I, in which we have our salvation, which we have our justification, and we have forgiveness of sins. That is the, that's the gospel right there. So he's pleased with him. Let's just take this a little personal, shall we? Are you well pleased with Jesus? I mean, are you well pleased with him? Do you love Jesus? Now hold on before you answer that question. Do you live a life that reflects that you're well pleased with Jesus? That you take delight in who Jesus is? That uh, Jesus is the one who brings you great joy? You know, back in ancient times, when they said, I believed, it was understood that that belief would now affect your actions. There was no dividing that. But here in modern age, we have a lot of people professing to believe in something, but yet their actions, their behavior, or a big word, ethics, does not follow their said belief. One thing I have to be careful of when I'm out there among the world, among lost people, co-workers, family members, is I have to make sure that I am living a life or living an example that shows them that Jesus is the most important person to me. Does that come easy? Uh, No. In fact, I cannot do it on my own. That's why we have the Holy Spirit to help guide us, correct us as we go along this life journey. Now, do not misunderstand me. Jesus does not need our endorsement. Jesus is the Savior regardless if you think he is or he's not. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords if we believe it or not. He is the great I am. He is the eternal God. He is God the Son. Now out there in the world, it's becoming more and more fashionable to come out and say, well, there's more than one way to God. God's on this mountain up here, and this huge mountain we got to climb. You just got to find your own path out how to get there. 
And they look at me and tell me, how dare you, Tim, talk about who Jesus is and he's the only way because that's exclusive. You, you, how about these other people? No. He's exclusive but yet inclusive. What I mean by that is inclusive because Jesus says anybody, anybody can come to him. Right? The invitation is for everybody. God so loved the what? The world. He doesn't love the so-called good people. God loved the world. What did he do? He gave his only begotten son. The whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in John 14, 6, Jesus makes this statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Anyone can come to Jesus, but Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to heaven. Now, I know I'm, you think I'm repeating myself a lot, but this message out in the world needs to be heard very clearly and succinctly because it's being lost. And not just out in the world, but some churches here in America are starting to preach there's more than one way to God other than Christ. I don't see the scriptures teaching that anywhere. He is the only way. So what does baptism of Jesus teach us? Well, first of all, baptism is a testimony. When John baptized, it was a it testified the fact that person who's being baptized by John repented of their sins. Now, I have to clarify something. You can't really separate being humble from repentance. They kind of go hand in hand. In order to have true, genuine repentance, it means you're going to have to humble yourself. Because when you start thinking about the sins and what you got to repent of, you got to humble yourself and let go of our pride because that's the biggest thing that steps in, isn't it, is our pride. Our pride robs us. We want to think of ourselves before anybody else. And what's the first thing that we usually do when someone points out something wrong in our life? Maybe not the first thing, but it, well, I'm better than old so-and-so. That's not going to work out when you meet God one day. It's about what you did with the gospel. Now, when Jesus was baptized, it was a testimony to the ministry of John, validated John's ministry, but also testified to the task that Jesus had from the Father. And the Father sends the Holy Spirit, it sends like a dove, and you have the voice from heaven. Now you have the evidence of a trinity. You have God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit in that one scene at his baptism. And we are baptized. It's a testimony to the rest of the world that we have become a follower or disciple of Jesus and that we desire to live our lives for him. God expects us to make our faith public. Baptism is the first and most primary way that we do that. Now, can you, can you be saved without being baptized? Yes, I don't think you have to be baptized in order to get saved. I think baptism is the result of your salvation because it's a public way you proclaim it. And you're proclaiming it in front of other brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, those two young people I've known for a long time now were baptized last week. But guess what? Not only are those two, Xander Lee and Tommy, I know, they're not just children that I know. They're now my brother and sister in Christ. The relationship has changed. The relationship with God has changed. And now I have a responsibility 
first of all, falls on David and Gina as his parents, for Tommy. But also our responsibility as brothers and sisters Christ to help disciple him. It's everyone's responsibility. Uh, by the way, uh, as we're coming in for practice, we pray before we practice on Sunday morning, and, and Charlie was talking about preaching, about the old song he was singing about, Preacher Man. And I asked him, you know what the word preaching means? In the Greek, it means to publicly proclaim. To publicly proclaim. And if you go back to the Great Commission, that's to all of us. It's not just to me as a pastor or a preacher. We all are to publicly proclaim him in our lives. And next thing we can learn from Jesus' baptism, that John the Baptist is not merely a footnote in, in history because Jesus validated both his ministry and his message. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, look what Jesus talks about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's a huge, huge coming from the Son, talking about John the Baptist. We also learn from his baptism, even though he is baptized, that Jesus is sinless. Look back at verse 14. The excuse John tries to tell him, I can't baptize you because I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He was perfect. He was sinless. He's never sinned ever. And this is critical for us to recognize and believe why is Jesus sinless. Because if Jesus was not sinless, what does that mean for you and I? It has huge implications. I call it thinking backwards. So let's say, for example, we think Jesus committed a sin somewhere. Well, if that's true, that renders his sacrifice null and void. That means he couldn't die because he wasn't perfect. He had to be perfect, a perfect sacrifice in order to die for you and I to make atonement for our sins. So if he has committed a sin, we're wasting our time. And ladies and gentlemen, we would have no hope. But we do have hope because he was sinless. He did live a perfect life and he laid his life down willingly for you and for me. And you need to come to Christ for baptism. Now, I don't mean in the water sense. We come to Christ for the cleansing of our sins. Water can't do that. What cleanses us from our sin? We have an old hymn that says this over and over again. What cleanses us from our sin? What can wash away my sin? There you go. Nothing but the blood. We put our trust in him and our faith in him. We are trusting that the blood of Christ that was shed on that cross many years ago is sufficient to pay for our sins. And by the way, everyone needs forgiveness, don't they? Every last one of us needs forgiveness. I have a little shocking news for you. We haven't figured this out yet. You're not perfect. Neither am I. Just ask your spouse. He or she will tell you that you're not perfect. <laughs> That's not the person I was hoping who would say it. If you have teenagers at home, parents, ask them if you're perfect. (laughs) 
bottom line is none of us are perfect. We've all broken the law of God. As I said last week in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Anything that the world calls good, it's like a filthy garment to God because I'm not perfect. Romans 3.23 puts it this way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When you see the words and actions of Jesus, do you ponder them? Do you consider them? Do you look to them for guidance for your own life? Or do you just give them the same importance that the world gives them? The same value or worth? Nice platitudes or sayings, but not for me. But Jesus does not give us that option. His words are to be taken seriously. If you're not a follower of Christ... Jesus' words to you are that he is the only way to God the Father. You have to come through him. That means you must confess and repent. That means you have to humble yourself by admitting that you need his forgiveness. And to believe and to trust and the faith that he paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. That he was crucified, he died and he was buried but on the third day he rose again that is the gospel in a nutshell is it not baptism of obedience why do we get baptized it's a public proclamation of our faith and we do it in beings because Jesus commands it in the great commission and because we follow Jesus example that he's loved for us but before you do that, you must count the cost. Because Jesus doesn't want blind followers. He desires, he desires disciples that will follow through or follow him even when it gets tough. And let me tell you, in my personal experience, I'd rather go through a tough time with Christ than to go without him. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's an everyday thing that we must do. Thinking about others before ourselves. Sacrificing ourselves. Now, I'm not telling you you need to go get crucified. I'm talking about putting other people first. Letting go of our pride. And when everyone gives me a compliment, give glory to God for it. I stand here before you this morning preaching his word, not because anything Tim did. It's all because of God. He's the one who worked in me. Or we can quote John, the Baptist. He's getting towards the end of his life. He was in jail. And he sent his, his disciples, his people with him. Hey, go find out if Jesus is the Messiah. I want to make sure he really is. 
And they went and they come back and report to him. This is what John's response was when he found out. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you have given your life to Christ and you have confessed and repented of your sins, you're following obedience with baptism. Now what do you do? He must increase, I must decrease. That's a daily. Well, let's be honest. It's an hour by hour. Because the first thing that will happen to you you walk out these doors is the enemy's going to test you. He's going to throw things your way. Because, see, the enemy doesn't care we're in here talking about this right now. doesn't really care about that. doesn't really care about the songs or how we encourage. No, he doesn't care. What he cares about is you go into his territory, the world, and you start talking to people, and God starts pulling them out of the darkness and pulling them into this marvelous light. That's what he doesn't like. And when you start doing that, he's going to attack. He's going to attack hard. He's going to attack fierce. And sometimes it'll be so much you think can't you endure. That's when you have to turn to God and say, God, help me. God, help me. All of us in here are to be publicly proclaiming our faith in him. So what say you? Where is your standing with Christ right now? Where are you at? And I end with this statement. I've said this before. There's only three things you are going in life. You're either in a storm, you're coming out of a storm, you're about to go into a storm. Who is walking beside you? Who do you trust? Jesus has promised never leave us nor forsake us. And my challenge, if you want to put it that way to you this morning, have you confessed? Have you repented? Have you followed in the beings of baptism? If you've done that, that's great. But how's your life? How are you living your life? What kind of witness are you proclaiming? I can preach the best sermon from this pulpit. I'm no, I'm no Spurgeon by any stretch of the means. But if I go out there and live my life like I don't care, any witness I had there just goes right out the window. And the same is true for you. So take this time. Let God search your heart. If you want to come up, I will pray with you. If you want to come up by yourself, if you want to go across the aisle and pray with somebody, but please, please do business with God this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your word. You've done everything that you can do. You made a way that we could be forgiven of our sins. You made the way that we can follow you. You've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. You have preserved your word down through the centuries, and we can read it in our native tongue, English. Father, you have given us so many tools to help us along our way. You've given us each other. You've given us the church. Father, we pray that we would live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, as it says in the book of Philippians. 
Father, speak to each one of us in this moment. Grant us discernment and wisdom and understanding. At the same time, grant us courage and boldness. May your will be done. In Christ's name we pray.